Well, we'll pick back up in chapter 2 with verse 13, and I'll just go ahead and read from 13 through the end of the chapter to kind of bring us on point. But first, oh, 26 of November, lesson 8, and we're in chapter 2 beginning with verse 13. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet through the, or through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he began, uh, became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity for two years, uh, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee, and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So we back up this morning to verse 13. And it talks about, once again, the angel of the Lord appearing to Joseph in a dream. Appearing to him in a dream. And we see these dreams that we've talked about earlier, you know, back in... Chapter 1, verse 20, where he first appeared talking about uh, for Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, that came through a dream as well. And then he was told not to return to, to Herod in the, in the previous verse, chapter 2, verse 12. But there are three more dreams that come through in this narrative where God chose to communicate in this way. But that word appeared here uh, can be linked back to what we were talking about when we were considering the star that led the uh, Magi to Jesus. And we talked about the Shekinah glory of God. We talked about that event being a supernatural event, not one of an astrological event, anything like that. Uh, because the word there uh, is the Greek word phaino, and it means to lighten or to shine. That's what that word means. So you see the the reference there when it says that it appeared to Joseph. This was the experience that he was having once again. Get up, take the child and his mother and go to Egypt and remain there until I tell you different. So we'll see the other three dreams. You see this one where he goes to Egypt and just read it. And then we'll get to verse 19 where he says take the child and his mother and go to Israel. And then lastly in verse 22, he tells Joseph, or that Joseph left from the regions of, of Galilee because he had heard that Archelaus was reigning. We'll get to that and we'll talk about 
the importance of that as well. But the dreams show forth the divine initiatives in Jesus' birth. You know, these are miraculous things that happen. The appearance uh, of the Lord in the dream or whatever to lead and to guide, to give direction. Uh, certainly a divine undertaking. And he's told to leave Egypt in this case. Egypt in the Old Testament was often a place uh, of haven, a place of protection, a place of rest. For Israel, there are a number of places you can go. I've listed three here. Uh, 1 Kings 11.40, 2 Kings 25.26, Jeremiah 26.21. Somebody's fleeing, somebody's looking for safe harbor, uh, somebody's trying to get away from somebody who's trying to kill them. Uh, on Israel, and somebody from Israel or Israel itself, they'd go to Egypt. Okay, and uh, so that was consistent uh, with what had been happening in the past. Egypt is where Israel's history as the people of God began, and of course we we know about that. So you see all this kind of coming together, and it's interesting to see what might be in the minds of people in those days. Uh, as they try to put all this together and they're thinking about Christ, uh, the Messiah, uh, I find it interesting. But you recall in this uh, third, I call it a manifestation or a prophecy, one of the three prophecies about Jesus as King, this would be the second of four geographical prophecies. We talked about Bethlehem being the first. We talked about that one. And now Egypt is mentioned. Um, and talks about it fulfilling prophecy. And then we'll see two more as the locations of Ramah and Nazareth are mentioned in this section. All of those are some type of prophecy, not necessarily uh, a particular, as they say, a verbal prophecy fulfilled like Bethlehem that said you would, that the Christ child would be born in Bethlehem. With these others, sometimes it's more of a picture, more of a parallel of a fulfilling, but still considered a prophecy and presented as such in the Word of God. So we see those, and uh, uh, those will become clear as, as we move along. So it says in verse 14 that Joseph got up and he took the child and his mother while it was still night, and he left for Egypt. And there's not a whole lot you can say about this particular verse other than it reflects once again on the obedience of Joseph who was dependent upon God, dependent upon God to give him direction, clear direction on what to do. And you remember he had learned that uh, way back in the, in the beginning when he first found out that Mary was with child. We talked about the struggle that he was no doubt going through and what he was trying to do as an honest man, a reputable man, and yet one who wanted to do right and it, you know, didn't want to cause Mary undue harm. And God intervened at that time and told him not to fear to take Mary. Well, this continues. This relationship, if you will, continues because he is a just and righteous man. And if we say nothing else, about Him at this point, other than the fact that we reflect upon that our closeness to the Lord Jesus, our closeness to God through His Word, nowadays through the Holy Spirit, is imperative in our ability, if you will, to hear His voice clearly, 
Can we make that parallel this morning? Can we agree that that's true? Because other things can get in our way. Can they not? They can get in our way. And we all have things that we're praying for. Many of you have shared prayer requests. Many of you have come up personally and shared prayer requests about things that uh, you're trying to decide right now. And you want to hear the voice of God. And I'm so glad to report to you this morning that you can hear that. You may not hear it with, a, with your, an audible, okay? But you can know, you can experience the will of God. You can get clarity on a direction, right? You can do that. And this was certainly uh, that which you know, typifies the life of Joseph during this time. These were great decisions that were placed before him as he's trying to protect his family. And if one thing that's come out of this, and going back and looking at how, at least from a historic perspective, all the things that were going on during that time, this was a horrible time. I mean, you talk about a violent time to live. And I'll give you some more examples of that this morning as we move on from Herod the Great to Archelaus. Okay, it wasn't any better. Okay, we'll look at that. But God has promised that He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. You know, we think about that in our society right here in you know, kind of benign terms sometimes. Or maybe it's just the, the heavy emotional things that we go through. And those can no doubt be difficult and be trying in our life. But these people were fearing for their very lives. Just like we talked about last week. When Herod the Great, you know, said he became troubled and all of Israel was troubled with him. Because they knew what could happen because of him and the way he was. And sometimes I wonder if we're, if we're any less secure, you know, in our leadership. We don't know that. We're not going to go political. Not going to do that here. But people are people, are they not? The Bible says that when the righteous are in power, the people rejoice. And that's what, what we pray for. So, to say no more about Joseph, he was faithful. And he moved forward uh, based upon what was relayed to him. Nowadays, we're without excuse. We have the Word of God. You want to know what God thinks about something? Read His Word. You got decisions to make? Read His Word. He will reveal Himself through His Word. Verse 15, He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. He's of course quoting in part from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 which says, When Israel was a youth I loved him and out of Egypt... I called my sons. You see this parallel again between the Christ and Messiah and Israel. <clears throat> All of this from Hosea is an expression of the Lord's great love for Israel and His promise to watch over Him, Him referring to Israel, and to deliver Him. So it's referred to as a pictorial prophecy. Not a, not a verbal one like with Bethlehem that we talked about. A pictorial prophecy. And it's given as such. Of course, you can read the one about Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. So the child Jesus was now safe in the borders of Egypt, just as Israel had been, or had experienced rather, in the days of, of Joseph and his brothers. And we know about the um, people of Israel growing up and flourishing in Egypt until they were delivered. Well, in this narrative, and I want to share this with you uh, from the Tyndall New Testament commentary, I like this. In this narrative, Matthew echoes elements 
of Moses' birth, not with pinpoint specifics, but with enough information to bring to mind, uh, at least for the Jewish Jewish reader, uh, you know, the parallels between Messiah and Israel, the flight from, from Egypt and the destruction of the children are on point. Okay, we can see the relationship there. But the message is clear. It's a deliberate depiction. Literally, as Jesus is the new Moses, they would have made that clear. And Christ, you know, would later have to clarify, and like we'll see it when we get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus Himself will say, don't think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't think that I came to do that, but I came not to abolish, but to do what? To fulfill it. To fulfill it. So all of this is taking shape. And Matthew wants to point this out. And this, that particular verse, of course, that I just read from chapter 5 follows the Beatitudes. And it'll be interesting when we get back to that point to resurrect that and literally look at that again. Verse 16, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. What a ruthless, heartless individual to be that paranoid, that selfish. But that's what he did. This word tricked in Paizo is an interesting word because what it means, it, it literally means a mocking or a taunting uh, it can mean, as it says, to play like a child or to play with someone like a child in a taunting kind of way. This is the way that he took it. Okay, This is the, uh, the way Matthew records it for us. It's the same word that you find in Matthew 29.19 where they're describing the taunts toward Jesus by His enemies. It's the same, same word. So you can imagine how that would do just as it says. He would become enraged. Thumu'u is the word. And it means to put in passion or to experience great wrath. It, wrath. it means to um, uh, be put in a position of losing control, if you will, because of your passions. Absolutely enraged that he had been mocked, as he took it, by the Magi. Of course, they weren't trying to mock him, right? They received word too. You need to get up and go on. Don't go back to Herod. That's what it said. Don't do that. So they were just being obedient. But I looked a little deeper at this incident involving the death of the children. Depends on who you read and what you're looking at. Some say that there might have been as many as a thousand boys um, in uh, that area at that time, just male children. That's questioned. Uh, some of the commentators get it down to 300. And they say if that were the case, and you'd probably be looking, and this is an estimate, at about maybe 20 children uh, who would have been two years and under. I'm not going to do the math. I don't know how they got there. I can report to you that that's what they're saying. And you'd say, wow, that's, that's horrific. Okay, the, the senseless murder, you know, sanctioned murder, governmental sanction of murder of innocent children. And yet when you continue on and you read about the history of that time, it's sad to say, but, but kind of grab a hold of this. That kind of would have went by the wayside with all that was going on, with all that was so horrific during that time. 
A lot of people were dying. People were killed. People were, uh, you know, just like we talked about Herod, who had taken some of the notable Jews that people knew, clapped them in irons, put them in prison, and held them there with orders that when he died, they were to be killed. They were to be executed so as to ensure that people would mourn at his birth. That's what's dominating the politics of that time. That's a horrible, horrible thing. So to think as tragic as this is, that the death, let's say, of 20 innocent children could kind of sting people for a while and then go by the wayside. It was really something. And all I could think about was those times in the future that it talks about where there will be, you know, just great evil going on, unrestrained, if you will, by the Holy Spirit of God. Well, that's what happened as a result of the question posed by the Magi regarding the birth of the king of the Jews and by the information given to Herod by the scribes and by his own deceptive declaration to come and worship the new king as well, Herod's order to destroy the children is extremely heinous. Can I ask a question? Yeah. So he killed the, child, the, the male children two years and under. Is the two-year mark um, significant in that Jesus might have been two years old around that period of time? or What I read said that he was just jacking up the time to be sure just in case the Magi had it wrong or whatever. He was covering uh, a broader spectrum, which again just, you know, reflects how narcissistic, you know, he was Magi about what he was doing. got there when Christ was a year? I, somewhere six months? I've seen six months. Okay. So, you know. But uh, you kind of go crazy doing the math. I mean, I don't know if anybody knows for sure, but it was, you know, in that general time. But that's the order he put out, two years and under. And that was to stretch it out to make sure that eh, if they got it off, if they're off a little bit, maybe even as much as a year, we'll just kill a few of those too. Okay? It didn't bother him any, apparently. So that's what you have. And it says that this was done in verse 17, that when he had spoken that that which had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. This was interesting. And you've heard the verse before in verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And that's from Jeremiah 31, 15. Well, you know, that, that location, Ramah, is about five miles north of Jerusalem, uh, it's located on the border between the northern uh, kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, and its significance is this, it is the place where Jewish captives were assembled by Babylon for the deportation. And that's interesting, because there's a lot of death and turmoil that went on in that place as well. No doubt children were killed there. So Ramah is the third of these four geographical locations that we've been talking about, these prophetic locations, which speak of the kingship of Jesus. And you know, we, we talked about how improbable by any stretch, by any kind of math, last week we mentioned it, how improbable it would be for all four of these geographical uh, prophecies to come to pass in the life of one person, 
talking about the Christ, the Messiah, much less all the other, and there were like over 300 in the Old Testament, which just speaks of the veracity of God's Word here. It is talking about Christ, the Messiah. So Matthew goes back and brings this uh, verse, if you will, this incident from Jeremiah 31.15 where there's much weeping and lamentation over the atrocities that were caused from the Babylonian captivity there in that same place, Ramah. And I think if you want more specific information, I believe that's what Pastor is doing his doctrinal study on, if I remember right. Somebody in here may know. It's pretty specific what he's doing. I'm pretty sure that's it. So that's interesting. Rachel, of course, was wife of Jacob, or Israel, mother of Joseph and Benjamin. She had once cried out, as we read in Genesis 30, verse 1, Give me children or else I die. And now she represents all those Jewish mothers who are weeping over their children. So we see this prophecy. And once again, it's a non-verbal prediction, as we said. It's more of a pictorial type of prediction. Jeremiah has in mind here the destruction of these children during this Babylonian invasion, which we know about. God works through disaster, though, doesn't He? He works in the midst of disaster and death and difficulty. And how interesting it is to see as we go back and look up to this point with Messiah coming at the right time, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son. We've looked at that. And it'll even become more interesting as we look at the life of Christ and see, once again, how nothing could happen in history or whatever. Nothing could happen regarding that which had been predetermined, of course, for the Son of God until it's time, until the fullness of time. They couldn't do anything. We'll continue to see God's hand in bringing about history as He has determined it to be. God works. If you look at the very next verse in Jeremiah 31 there, look at 16. It says, Thus says the Lord, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and, and He will return from the land of the enemy. In other words, He gives this encouragement. He gives this admonition to the people that, look, it's a difficult time right now. It's a difficult time, but it's going to change. There will be, as it says, joy in the morning. There will be a good time coming. Okay, God's going to fulfill what He has purposed in that, in that context for His people Israel. And He does the same for His church. He does the same for His people today who love Him and who care for Him. Don't be discouraged by the difficulty of the task. Don't be discouraged by how enormous it may seem. Because we serve a God who's got it all laid out. He's not going to leave us as individuals. He's not going to hang us out. He's not going to do that. But it remains to be seen if we're going to trust Him in difficult times. Now I want to share this with you. The slaughter in Bethlehem was the beginning of the tragedy and bloodshed that would result from Israel's rejection of her Savior and true King. We've seen that. Those innocent and precious babies of Bethlehem were the first casualties in the now intensified warfare between the kingdoms of of this world and the kingdom of God's Christ, 
God's anointed. Within two generations from that time, AD 70 of course, Jerusalem would, set, would see its temple destroyed and over a million, a million of its people massacred by the troops of Titus. Yet that destruction will pale in comparison with that of the Antichrist. A ruler immeasurably more wicked and powerful than Herod, when in the great tribulation he will shed more of Israel's blood than will ever have been shed before. Daniel records it in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. And again in Matthew, Matthew records it himself again in Matthew 24, verse 21. All that bloodshed is over the conflict with the Messiah. Who do you think wrote that? Who does that sound like? John McCarthy. <laughs> That's right. But I share that with you to get, once again go back and, and paint a picture of the times. <clears throat> and what, what had been happening, and all the, the senseless murders and executions and so forth that took place. Well, that catches up with Herod, because Herod died. That's what it says in verse 19. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, appeared in a dream uh, in Egypt, and said, verse 20, get up and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Josephus writes about the death of Herod. I mentioned him earlier when we were talking about history, and he is, of course, a Jewish historian. He says specifically that this Herod died of ulcerated entrails. I almost hesitate to read this. Putrefied and maggot-filled organs, <coughs> constant convulsions, foul breath. As he got up close and personal, I don't know. Uh, and neither physicians nor warm baths led to his recovery. I hate to know that that's the way they were trying to cure me during that day. <laughs> but we have that from, from history. And when he died, his son steps up, <clears throat> Archelaus, and has this lavish funeral for him. Has those folks killed that were supposed to induce mourning amongst the people. And it's interesting, too, just to put a little cherry on top of this, this Herod that died only five days prior to his death, you know what he did? He had one of his other sons executed. What a guy. Okay. What a horrible time to be living unless you were in that really, really small group of people who had been looking for the Messiah who were hopeful in the Word of God, you know, who were looking for Him, looking for Him according to the Scriptures. What would the Scriptures say? And there were, a, there were some of those, but not many. Remember even when the Magi came in, where is He who is born King of the Jews? And nobody really jumps up and says, oh, I, I know that. I heard that in Temple the other day. Nobody said that. Nobody said that. It's only when He makes His way to Herod. So an interesting, interesting time. So, Joseph got up, he took the child and his mother, and he came into the land of Israel. But it says in 22, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod the Great, that he was afraid to go there. Well, we got some information about him too. And he was warned by God in a dream, in a dream again to leave and, and go to the region of Galilee. Who is this Archelaus? What about him? Okay, well, he had previously had 3,000 3, Jewish pilgrims at 
Passover. He had quelled a, rebe a rebellion there, but he had those 3,000 people executed. And history says that what his daddy had done, he had taken this Roman symbol, the eagle, of the, of the Roman government, and he had actually put it up on one of the temple gates, okay, and kind of mocking what they were doing, or who knows what he was trying to do politically, bring the two together, because this is the tightrope that he walked, you know, between Rome and the Jews. And some people had taken that down, and he uh, said, so a couple of notable uh, priests had taken that thing down in defiance, and he had him executed. And as a result of that, there was this big riot. Well, Archelaus inherited the riot, so he had all of them executed. Again, that's the flavor of the day. That's what's going on. But even in all this, we look at what Matthew is trying to do and present Jesus as King. Nothing, nothing could stop His birth. Nothing could stop His life. Nothing could stop the fulfillment of His mission. He's going to do exactly what He came to do at the direction of God. We'll see that over the next seven years as we study Matthew. <laughs> but we'll see that. But it's divine revelation. Obviously, the angels, the dreams, and so forth. You see the hand of God doing things that only God can do. And then the divine, the divine plan fulfilled according to the Old Testament prophecy which we continue to, to look at and to resurrect from time to time. He came and He lived in Nazareth. And again, and this is the, uh, let's see, uh, Ramah was the third, now Egypt, or not Egypt, but Nazareth is the fourth and final geographical location that we're going to mention. And He says again, this was to feel, fulfill what the, the prophets would say that He shall be called a Nazarene. Nazareth, 55 miles north of Jerusalem. It's in the region of Galilee. It's the area in which Joseph was directed to go. He's sent to a general area. But a Nazarene, to be a Nazarene was, was a term of, of great derision. It generally described a person in that day and culture. It was known to describe a person who was rough and, and rude and uneducated. And you know, it was, it was it was Nazarene, you know, one of those, one of those kind of things. So this was the the attitude that the people of the day would have had. Okay. Now Jesus, it says, would be called a Nazarene. What does Nathaniel say about? Yeah, yeah. Can any can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And you will recall what about Nathaniel? What was his nature? What did Jesus say about Nathaniel? That's my my son, my grandson's name, by the way. <laughs> Israelite indeed, an Israelite indeed, like no God yeah. in whom there is no no God. He doesn't think bad about people. He's not negatively motivated. He's just spouting out, you know, what the culture uh, presents, I guess, day in and day out. Where does it say in Scripture mm -hmm. that he will be called a Nazarene? John one forty six. Where? John one forty six. But that's. Yeah. In the New Testament, is there nothing in the Old Testament? Oh, oh, no. Uh, well, that's interesting. I'm going there. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, okay. The origin of the Old Testament prophecy is not given by Matthew. It's not. Uh, and then, perhaps he says it was common knowledge. Maybe the reason he didn't give it. 
But it's not unlike other things that you see in Scripture. For instance, I give the example that Paul states like in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where he talks, he says that Jesus said that it was more blessed to give than to receive. But none of the Gospels record Jesus saying that. You won't find that. Okay, It was just information that they knew and it was validated in some way. Uh, but no, you won't find that. Now they propose some other explanations for that. Uh, saying perhaps that Nazareth could be used as a synonym for one who is despised or for one who is uh, a despicable person or someone who is just, you know, I guess you could say rejectionable, you know, one of those persons. Now, we can see the link there because the Bible, and I've got the scriptures here, I'll read them to you in a minute, but they speak of Christ in that fashion from the Old Testament. For instance, Psalms 22, 20, uh, verses 6 through 8 says, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. Uh, they separate with the lip. They wag their head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Speaking of Christ. Again in Isaiah 49.7 it says, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. It's talking about the rejection of the servant Christ or Messiah at His first advent. And that's just to say that this might have been on Matthew's mind, perhaps, when he said that. We don't, we don't know that. Well, that would make sense. In the sense like today, we, yeah. might, we might say something similar. We say He would be a pariah. Yeah. And we would all know what that meant. Right. And we could even say, according to the prophets, he would be a pariah. And that would be a true statement. But in our culture, that meant that means something to us versus somebody else, you know, 200 years from now being like, where does it say in the Old Testament the word pariah? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And while you're looking at it, you know, look for the word trinity. You know, you're not going to find it either. Okay. But that's just the way it works. Yeah. And I, I appreciated that, that input. That was enlightening to me. Uh, but that's what we have. He was, as we know from Isaiah and in the last verse, Isaiah 53.3, the one I'm sure which you're most familiar, says of Christ that He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised, and we did not esteem Him. So at any rate, I don't know what was on the mind of Matthew when he reported it, but we know that about our Lord and Savior. And of course, we can look at his birth and see he was born in a feeding trough. Okay? That's where he lay in swaddling clothes after he was born. In a, in a we like to say stable, and that probably conjures up a particular image of your grandparents' farm or something, but it was more like a hole in the earth, a, a cave, so to speak. A cave. And that's where he was born. Not many wise, not many noble chosen. Mike, I have a question. Yeah. What was the sect um, that Samson was associated with? Nazarites? Oh, Na like in the Nazarites? Nazarites? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is it a similar... You're talking about like a, a Nazarite vow. Right, that, that and that was thinking John was John the Baptist was kind of in that realm too. So is that not the same? Could group? be. Let me let me 
report on that next okay. week as we get into John the Baptist. That might be the perfect time uh, to look at that. Yeah, I understand your question, though. And we'll look at that and clear that up. Yeah. But that's our Savior. That's, that's who He is. That's why He was missed by so many. That's why, as it says in there and again in, in uh, Isaiah 53, that there's no commonness about Him, that we should desire Him. You've read that verse. That means, in essence, that if you were to see Christ in a crowd, He's just another Jewish guy. Okay, He was a national Jew. He bore those physical characteristics. You wouldn't pick Him out. But He's the living Word of God. And that's why when they, the temple guys came back, the temple uh, soldiers came back and said, never a man spoke like this man. Never. So to see Him walk down the street would be one thing. You wouldn't be drawn to Him according to Scripture. But to hear Him speak, you would be. Because you would be hearing the very Word of God. He only does and says those things that His Father tells Him to do and say. And that's what you would have there. So, Matthew's endeavor in these first two chapters is to present Him as King to a Jewish audience. And you can understand why some work needs to be done there. Because He does not fulfill the role in which they expected the King to, to fulfill. You know, he's not couched in all the things that they thought would characterize him as he comes on the scene. And apart from looking for him according to the scripture, there was no possibility of finding him or identifying him. So it's a wonderful, wonderful thing that God brings to pass. So I wanted to mention as we close kind of what we've covered just by way of just, just to mention it. We've looked at of course, chapter 1 and chapter 2 here. Uh, we first looked at Matthew as an individual. Who was Matthew? And we'll look at him again when uh, we look at his calling and so forth. Uh, then we looked at the book as a whole. We did that. And then we got into it and looked at Christ, uh, the Messiah, and His royal line. We looked at the legal line through Joseph. We looked at the bloodline through Mary, both of them being descendants of David. We looked at length at the virgin birth, how that came about, the importance of that. And then we looked at the Magi, which took us to Herod. The Herods, as they continue on, there's a lot of them. Uh, Herod the Great. And then Daniel's influence. And throughout, when you study the commentaries, all of them seem to have this question at some point in the commentary. How did the Magi know about the birth of the Christ? And Daniel plays such a huge role in that, going back, you know, 500 years where he had influence over these wise men, these magi in the Medo-Persian Empire. Interesting about what God did to unfold his plan. And then specifically in the last few lessons, we looked at Christ, again, as King of the Jews. They came saying first, where is he who is born King of the Jews? Secondly, we looked at Herod's declaration, which was unknown to him, that he responded to the presence of Christ as a king, which brought, you know, which focused upon his kingship. That was the second thing, and Christ being presented as king. And then thirdly, was these four geographical locations that we've looked at in the narrative here that speak of the birth of the Christ. So total that we looked at 48 verses 
all of them narrative in, in nature. And that's going to change as we continue on. I got to thinking about the story. You can't, you can't cover everything, uh, but you may or may not realize there is a portion that deals with a nativity that uh, we didn't look at, that you might have wanted to look at. And I, I trust it's by God's design because to me it seems appropriate to end this particular part of the study right now by looking at Luke chapter 2 uh, beginning with verse 8. And we can do that and close out our time this morning together. You're familiar with this passage. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in clothes and laying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. Let's pray this morning.